Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a podcast intended to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. The goal being for the listener to know and experience God and His Word firsthand. This episode is Tithing Your Time. I find statistics interesting. It's interesting how people can twist data to shape our frame of mind, and I doubt it's always a conspiracy theory at work, but nonetheless, the presentation does shape our outlook. Recently, I read through a study on church attendance, and feel free to look up church attendance statistics uh, on your own, and what will happen is you'll find, I believe, what I did. Whether it's Pew Research, Barna, Lifeway, etc., they all have the same tendency to link the highest measurable level of church attendance, the highest mark of the healthy Christian, if you will, as one who attends one in-person service per week. They will usually have several categories, and they look like this. Don't attend at all, attend on holidays only, attend once per month, or attend weekly. And this attend weekly seems to be the highest level they would report on. And honestly, it rubbed me the wrong way. If that is a two-hour time frame, including worship, a sermon, and some time to fellowship and uh, uh, catch up with friends, that's less than 1% of a week. On a personal level, I don't find one service per week enough. I wonder how people could even survive on less than that. I know I have the capacity to read the Bible on my own, and download high-quality sermons and teachings, but that's not the point. Those are good things for sure, but it's not the whole picture. When I was in college, I had to write a lot of papers, and I don't remember most of them, but this last week, a thought from one of those papers, 25 years ago, I'm getting old, one of those thoughts came to mind. It had to do with the principle of tithing, not tithing your treasure, but from your talent and your time. The dynamic of tithing your time hit me hard this week while considering these statistics. The reality of it is that if we go down this rabbit hole, we're talking about seven days per week times 24 hours per day equals 168 hours per week. The tithe, therefore, the 10% would be 16.8 hours of time devoted to church and our relationship with God. And these studies seem to esteem the top tier as being 1% as opposed to this tithe amount of 16.8. Or can we go ahead and just round it to 17? Now, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a day to be set apart, the focus of which is not us, but on God. Rest, worship, sacrifice, temple or synagogue activities, but no work. It would also be good here to mention that when you read through books like Exodus, you'll find that in addition to the Sabbath, there were other sacrifices and offerings throughout the week. The temple didn't shut down for the better part of a week just because it wasn't Sunday or Saturday, the Sabbath. Something to chew on for a little bit there. Anyhow, it's not like the Sabbath is a tithe, or is it? Setting apart one day or one 24-hour period per week is about 14%, which is a bit more than the tithe. But what do you do on the Sabbath that you do every other day, aside from eating? You sleep. Everybody sleeps. 
Those who study such things report that the average person sleeps seven hours, plus or minus, per night. Subtract that seven hours from 24-hour Sabbath, and you have 17 hours, or a few minutes more than the tithe of time, 16.8 hours. So what am I advocating here? I am not advocating a strict return to the Sabbath of the Old Testament, but definitely a return to the spirit of the Sabbath, a tithing of our time, a giving of our time back to the Lord, a giving back in terms of time at church, time of service within the church, time to soak up good Bible teaching, time of corporate worship, a time of personal Bible study and reading, a time of fellowship, and definitely a time of rest. I'm not convinced that all this needs to be done in one single day, but wouldn't that upset the statistical framework of the Pew and Barna and Lifeway and others out there trying to do this statistical tracking? Could it be that 17 hours per week and all these activities I mentioned could create stronger and healthier people, stronger and healthier families, stronger and healthy churches, stronger and healthier communities? And could it be a prerequisite to revival or awakening? And while I'm at it, stomping on the statistical world, I wonder if there is a statistic of the frustration level for those who long for revival but fail to put in the tithe of time. I mean, seriously, could we really handle revival with the amount of time that some people devote at present? There's really a two-pronged problem here. There's no doubt that there is a spiritual battle behind this. At the same time, the human heart is stubborn, selfish, and prideful. Let's take a look at the spiritual side here first. History is a record of the devil's playbook. And to quote Solomon from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. In the book of Daniel, chapter 8, he records a vision he has regarding the end of times. In the vision, he highlights one of the devil's M.O.'s. And maybe you've heard that term in a police drama or detective show with regard to criminal activity. It means modus operandi, which is a particular method or way of doing something, especially that is characteristic or well-established, hence mode of operation. In short, it's predictable. There are things the devil does that are simply predictable. They're still dangerous, but they're predictable. And we see this prophesied in Daniel 8. Quick side note. On your own, uh, read several translations of Daniel 8, whether it be the Amplified, the ESV, the NLT, NIV, uh, and the Message. Uh, and I think it'll give you a really solid look at what's going on in uh, Daniel 8. And it is absolutely epic. I think the Message, just in all honesty, like I said, total side note here, I think the message will make it really clear, and I think reading all of the other versions, uh, I think most people might miss the severity of what's going on in chapter 8. So read several versions of that. I think you'll find it uh, to be, uh, like I said, uh, epic. But Daniel describes a spiritual battle where demonic forces take on heaven, angels are thrown to the earth and stomped. Uh, it's actually a quote from one of the versions there. Uh, and they dared challenge God himself, is referred to in one of the versions as the prince of the celestial armies. And then they do a few things 
that we really need to be aware of in verses 11 through 13. And their attacks should show you what's most dangerous to them. One, they come after daily sacrifice and daily worship, and those are eliminated and removed from the temple. Emphasis right on the bat, right off the bat there is the word daily. You're going to see that happen from now to the end of the podcast several times. Second thing they do is they desecrate the temple. And sometimes we think of desecrate as a violent vandalism, but it can also mean to treat with disrespect or without the intended level of sacred respect. Number three, as a consequence of their sin, God's people are thrown out of the church also or out of the temple. Uh, and number four, the comment is made in Daniel 8 is that the truth is cast aside. And this is the devil's MO. And although this is a prophetic message of the end times, it's still a picture of spiritual battle we are in right now. Daily worship is minimal, if non-existent for some. Many churches are closed more throughout the week than they are open. And as a consequence, only 20-some percent of people are in church a minimum of one day per week. And what's the result? Truth is being replaced by a society with your truth and my truth, and the truth is being cast aside and trampled upon, and the consequences thereof are devastating. There's a definite spiritual battle going on, and it begins with getting people out of church. At the same time, we bear responsibility, on a personal level at least, for these things. This is the second of the two-prong problem. Let's take a look at one passage in Jeremiah about God's frustration with the Jews and their disregard or disrespect for the Sabbath. And a quick side note here. In addition to this passage in Jeremiah, if you're interested in further study, the totality of Jeremiah's ministry happens to take place during the last four chapters of Second Kings, which will give you a broader picture of who he was speaking to. With that in mind, during the time leading up to the exile, the Jews were living in straight-out rebellion. Jeremiah 16.12 highlights their attitude pretty well. This is God's accusation of the Jews. And you have done worse things than your fathers. Just look, every one of you walks in the stubbornness of his own evil heart so that you do not listen obediently to me. And this is eerily similar to the phrases like that in the book of Judges. I say that to say this attitude is nothing new. And that's what brings us to Jeremiah 17, verses 22 and 23, where God continues the tongue lashing. Be careful if you care about your lives. Do not desecrate the Sabbath by turning it into just another workday, lugging stuff here and there. Don't use the Sabbath to do business as usual. Keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your ancestors. They never did it, as you know. They paid no attention to what I said and went about their own business, refusing to be guided or instructed by me. The phrases, turning it into another workday, business as usual, went about their own business, refusing to be guided or instructed by me, should hit us all right between the eyes. This same rebuke is levied three times in this chapter against the Jews. What a scathing rebuke, and yet they didn't get the message. And a few short chapters later, 
they end up dead or in Babylonian exile. I'm not surprised by our culture's effort to encroach on our time with God. Less time equals greater spiritual weakness. Think about it. Many sporting activities are now on Sundays. Our youth traveling sport events are on Sundays, a round of golf, shopping, fishing, hunting. Look at your activities and fill in the blank. Work schedules and business activities like open houses, auctions, not to mention household chores, are done on Sunday. What else is encroaching on your Sunday church time? What encroaches on your time throughout the week, making Sunday look like a viable option to do other things and go to church? So by now, someone has to be asking the question, where is this in the New Testament? Well, it's all over the book of Acts. Acts 2, 46 and 47, not only had the 112 been in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, but they continued in the ministry, and the phrase there is used daily. Acts 6, 1, a complaint arises within the group there. Again, they were meeting together daily. Several chapters later, Acts 16, 4 and 5, Paul and Timothy are traveling and uh, traveling through the town, strengthening the church. And the phrase again is people were added to the church daily. Acts 17, 17. In Athens, Paul taught the phrase is day after day in the synagogues and the streets with anybody who would listen. Acts 19, 9, Paul preached daily for two years in Ephesus. They moved him out of the synagogue, and they put him up in the hall of Tyrannus. And what ended up happening? Repentance followed. The people who were being taught ended up burning about $1 million worth of sorcery books. Following that was revival. Following the repentance and the revival, you ended up with riots. And I firmly believe this just get up on my own uh, soapbox here, but I firmly believe that a good indicator of revival or awakening will be in the form of businesses clamoring about Christianity. When their addicted followers repent and no longer spend time or money on their product, or when people quit their jobs because they refuse to work for morally bankrupt entities, here endeth my rant on that. But as you can see, the terminology used in the book of Acts is repetitively daily, day after day. At this point, we've moved from tithing our time to making an offering of it. We use the term tithe as the first 10%, and anything after that is an offering. So no matter where you're at, I'm willing to bet that we could all give a bit more of our time. Whether you want to call it a tithe of time or an offering of time, I don't care. But after all, aren't we the ones who would benefit the most? I mean, what happens when God is enjoying his time with us as much as we're enjoying our time with him? Are we ever worse off for having spent more time with God? So look at your schedule. Are you tithing your time or making an offering of your time? What do you need to cut out? What do you need to move? What do you need to reschedule or adjust? Do you need a new job schedule? Inasmuch as it is in your control, what are you willing to sacrifice to pursue more time with God and more time with your church family? It's time to tithe 
your time. I want to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this podcast, this message. For everyone who's listening, God, I just pray that you would just shine a light on our lives, reveal what we need to address, and give us the strength to do so, I pray. Pray that you'd be with everyone listening, God, and just give them encouragement and strength, Lord, to do what needs to be done in life. We love you. We thank you. Amen. I'm Nate Vinio, and this is something to nod.